Let's pray. Almighty Father, uh, we are so thankful uh, of your kindness toward us, Lord, and kindness toward our church. And um, <clears throat> being in this valley, Lord, we pray that you would open the hearts of the people in this valley to hear the gospel and help them to come to know you through this place, Lord, for your glory and your honor. I pray that you'd be with my brother today. Give him the words to speak from your word. Help your word to bring conviction on us, Lord. Help us change and conform us more and more to be more like Christ. Um, thank you for this day, and thank you for all you do for us. In Jesus' name, amen. of John, John chapter 14, I'll begin reading at verse 8, and I'm going to read all the way through verse 11, John chapter 14, verses 8 through 11, and when we began this chapter, of course, we had this wonderful uh, encouragement by the Lord and uh, the Lord Jesus for his disciples that they would not be troubled but that they would trust God and of course there Jesus gives them a command and the reason he's doing this is because he had just shared the truth that he was leaving he was going to be with his father and in light of this then Thomas asks how do we get there we want to know how to get to your Father. And Jesus tells them, of course, that He is the way to the Father. They, they don't need a Google Maps or anything like that. If, if they turn to Christ and believe in Him, they will, they will make it to the Father. And now, in light of His answer, in light of the answer that He gives to Thomas, there in verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. And then he adds, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. And as I said, those, don't be half, those, those two clauses do not have to be translated with an if. You can say, since you have known me, you will also know the father. Or you would have also known the father. And really, this is a word of promise and comfort to the disciples. So if you know me, you know the Father. You don't have, you don't have no need or concern. And in light of that, then, Philip raises the next question. And really, this chapter is just a series of questions and answers. Questions by the disciples, answers by Jesus. And now here's the next question. Philip, in verse 8, asks Jesus, Lord, Show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority. 
But the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Amen. So here, in this chapter, or in these verses, we have a request in verse 8. That's from Philip. Philip's request is he wants to see the Father. What Jesus does is Jesus asks Philip two clarifying questions. They're really rhetorical questions. They're they're meant to snap Philip kind of out of it and, and help him recognize that he has what he is asking for in Christ. And then in verse 11, he gives a command. Jesus gives a command. So a request, verse 8, two Clarifying questions, verses 9 and 10, and then verse 11, one blessed command that Jesus gives. Now, uh, pay attention here to uh, Philip's request. He says, Lord, show us the Father. And um, Philip is asking the right person. This is the person you want to ask this question. This is why Christ came into the world, that men might know the Father. And from the beginning of the Gospel of John, John records this truth. He repeats it throughout his Gospel. Uh, I'll show you three places here. Look at the, fir- uh, the Listen to the first, John 1.14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld His glory. The glory of the Word, which is Jesus, the Son of God. The glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And that glory that He reveals to us is the very glory of God. Why does Christ come into the world? To reveal the Father. Even more clear, John in John 1.18 says this, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has made him known. He has declared him. And this is at the very beginning, the prologue of the gospel, where John is sort of setting down some of the things that he will be um, explaining throughout the uh, 21 chapters of this book. Now, John 12.45, Jesus says this, He who sees me sees him who sent me. And that is the Father. So he's coming to the right person. The issue is, that when Jesus makes these statements, they're kind of difficult to understand. So let's pay attention here at at exactly what Philip is asking. And I think it clarifies why Jesus answers the way that he does. So he says, show me, or show us. He's including the other disciples. I don't know if they're willing parties. I don't know if they want to be a part of his question, but he includes them. He says, show us the Father. And that word is an, is, is an interesting word because that word for show has to do with the idea, or conveys the idea of making the character of someone known. that is what Philip is actually getting at. He's not saying, show us the Father's naked glory, His person, because Christ would have to call the Father down from heaven. That's not what he's asking for. He's asking Christ to make known to Him 
who the Father is. Listen to three uses, and I know we're already looking at a bunch of passages. I'm, um, I promise it'll slow down here. <laughs> but, but the use of this word is important for the point that I'm trying to make. Look at Acts 20, or listen, or look at Acts 20.35. This is Paul speaking to the elders at Ephesus. That's the context. And he's, he's uh, encouraging them to continue to be faithful to God. And one of the means by which they ought to be encouraged and persevere is by Paul's own example. So he says to them in Acts 20.35, I have shown you, that's our word, in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. You see, in this act of showing, what, what is he doing? He's making something known. And here in this context, of course, he's making known how you're to take care of people who have needs. If you see people who are, have needs, and you think to yourself, what should I do? Well, you look at Paul, and wow, he worked a lot. Which means he earned funds to provide for those who needed. Look, listen to 1 Corinthians 12.31. But earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet... I show you a more excellent way. And then in chapter 13, what does he do? By means of linguistic communication, he shows them the better way, which is love. It, what, what Philip is asking for is a demonstration of who God is, of who the Father is. He wants to know. In James 3.13, James uses the word this way, and it's not in most translations, is not translated as show. It's translated as demonstrate. So James 3.13, let him demonstrate his deeds by his good life. So what kind of deeds does a person commit? Well, they demonstrate or they show the kinds of deeds, excuse me, they show, yes, they show uh, their deeds by means of their good life. You see this open demonstration. Philip is not asking for mere concepts about God. Give me a theology 101 class. I'm not saying that that's not important, understanding God that way as, uh, conceptually. But he wants a concrete demonstration. Something to the effect of... Uh, um, uh, something that might affect him in such a way that he says, Ah, yes, now I see the Father. And this is taken into account in Jesus' reply, which we'll look at in a second, his questions and his uh, command. And, and when what Philip says is encouraging. Again, you read commentators and listen to preachers, and it's like... Um, Philip is asking a boneheaded question. Well, maybe he is asking a boneheaded question, but who hasn't? And I mean, that really is the nature of questions. It's because of, we ask questions because we are ignorant of a truth, of something, whatever it might be. Therefore, we ask. And um, Jordan Peterson, uh, I have it here somewhere. Yes, he, he, he said this, and I thought this was very perceptive. He said this, you have to be willing to be a fool to advance. If you want to make any advances in life, you have to be uh, willing to be a fool in some respects. Right? When, when a young man or, uh, takes a career, let's say, as a, a carpenter, right? 
and he is an apprentice, is he going to be framing houses his first day? No, he's going to be the fool on the job. Go get me a hammer. <laughs> right. Clean my bucket, you know? Uh, it, it's, it's, he, in essence, gives himself over, right, as a fool to be taught. The same thing for a man who might go into medical school or whatever it might be. You have to be willing to be a fool to advance. And that's what, what Philip is doing. F Philip is asking because he wants to know. And then in his statement, what he says is, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. If you demonstrate to us the character of God the Father, it's all we need. Philip, maybe asking for the twelve, has a particular purpose in asking to know the Father. Because what you have to think is, sufficient for what? This demonstration that Philip is asking for is sufficient for something, but what is it sufficient for? Well, think about the context. Think about all of chapter 14, even chapter 13. You know, I, I would commend to you reading the Gospel of John regularly. If you read one chapter a day and took weekends off, you'd read it once a month with room to spare. But he has a purpose, and this is the purpose. Sufficient for us to know the way to him. If you show us who he is, Jesus, we will know where you are going and we will be able to find you. That is what this context and the entire setting of the chapter is really all about. Getting to where Jesus is going. How do we get there? And that's the question he has. One author writes this about Philip. He says, Philip thus joins the queue of human beings through the ages who have rightly understood that there can be no higher experience, no greater good than seeing God as he is, in unimaginable splendor and transcendent glory. Philip knows what he needs to have his heart set right and to know where Christ is going. And what we ought to do is to search for God with all of our heart. This truly is one, if not the greatest need we have, to know the Father. And God encourages us to seek Him. He does this throughout His Word. So in Jeremiah 29, 13, what does He say? You will seek for me and find me when you seek for me with your whole heart. And, and where, where should we seek for him? In his word. Psalm 119 is just an excellent example of this particular truth. And then when Jesus rebukes the Pharisees, he says to them in John 5.39, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, but it is they which testify of me. So if we want to see the Father, we've got to go to the word to see the Father. So I would encourage you, to be in the Word. You see, the, the way that the question is answered for us is turn to the Scriptures. Turn to the living Word of God. And now, in light of this, Jesus is going to ask Thomas two clarifying questions and then he's going to give him that blessed command in, chapter, in verse 11. And here are the questions. Well, here, Here's the first one. Have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. 
So how can you say, show us the Father? In essence, with this question, what Jesus is saying is, to know me is to know the Father. And in turn, to know the Father is to know me. And of course, the Spirit is intimately involved and related because uh, shortly here we're going to get into the promise of the Spirit in verse 15 of this chapter. So the Spirit, of course, is intimately involved in this knowledge that we need. He is the one who gives us understanding. Or as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians, the Spirit searches the deep things of God. Jesus, in, in saying this, uh, because many, many, many people come to this passage and they leave as heretics, right? They, they come here and they leave believing that Jesus and the Father are the same person. But that's not his point at all. Remember, uh, um, Philip is not asking for a visible repre representation of God, but for a demonstration of the character and nature being of God. And Jesus is saying, if you've seen me, you've seen him. It is sufficient to see me. So Jesus is not denying the distinct persons in the Godhead. He is not saying, I and the Father are the same and the Spirit is the same. We're just different manifestations of the same God. What T.D. Jakes teaches, and many Christians or professing Christians unwittingly believe, that God has revealed himself in different modes. And that's not the case. Jesus is not denying the distinct persons in God. In other words, the doctrine of the Trinity is not being denied in this verse by Jesus. He and the Father are not the same person, but they do share the same divine essence. Jesus is dramatically declaring the unity of God and his mission as the one who reveals who God is in his person. And Paul puts this wonderfully in 2 Corinthians 4.6. He says that in the gospel, we attain the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Uh, that is one of the most like, packed verses in the New Testament. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. So in other words, if Paul was standing there with Philip, he would have said to Philip, just look at him. He is the glory of his Father. The problem that many ran into in Jesus' day, and even in our day, is because of, um, I think it was Calvin who put it this way, he said, because of the meanness of his person, the, the humility that he stooped, uh, how he stooped down from heaven and became a man, because of that, many did not see the glory of God in the Son, but it was by virtue of that humility that God was to be revealed to them in his willingness to suffer for the sake of his people so they might be redeemed. Uh, uh, Paul, in Hebrews 1.3, he says it this way, that Jesus, being the brightness of his glory and the expressed image of his person, that is who Christ is. We have to remember that general concepts about God are good and beneficial. Right? Just general concepts. God is just, he's holy, he's good, so on and so forth. They're good for individuals, right? Because they help us govern and arrange our life in a particular way. They're good for families for the same reasons and communities and even for countries. General concepts about God. General biblical concepts. They're very good. Now one of the examples that I thought of was there are many countries 
in the world who have a Christianity, or at least some form, in the, the background of the country. And it's still so fresh that they do not allow abortion for any reason. So in Brazil, in Chile, and in Ireland, you can't get an abortion. It has to be a very, very extreme case. Like the mother is on the verge of dying if we don't get this baby out of her. That's the only reason. Why is that? Why do they act that way? Well, because you have these general principles and concepts about God that they have embraced at some capacity. And I'm not saying savingly. But because they are created in the image of God, there is this moral weight that is placed upon them. We've slid in so far in America that, you know, we could care less. As I said, general concepts, they're, they're good, and to an extent they're profitable. But as Christians, we must always be clear. No one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. That's Matthew eleven twenty seven. In other words, unless you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as he is revealed in the gospel, you cannot and will not go to heaven. So now Jesus asks the second question here. So the first question, of course, had to do with he himself as a visible representation of the Father. Now, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? Again, this is one of the, these hard statements in the Gospel of John. What is he talking about? Well, there's a doctrine, and it's called perichoresis, of the mutual indwelling of the persons in the Godhead. But we're not going to talk about perichoresis. <laughs> what, what, what he's saying is that the Father and I, we share the same essence. Well, I do not, well, there, there is a sense where we all share the same essence because we're humans, right? But we're individual persons and we share that essence in different ways. The Father and the Son share the essence, and to say share the essence, I don't mean that the, the essence of God is broken up into three parts. It's one essence and three persons. The Father, the Son, and of course the Spirit share in the divine essence. Therefore, there is a mutual relationship and uh, the, the word that you, another word that's used, and an inner, inner penetration of the persons into one another that, honestly, we don't understand. And we will never. This is one of the mysteries of the Trinity. And you have to be comfortable... If you, can, if you can fit your God in a box, keep him in your pocket with you. But the God of the Bible is not a God we can lock into a box. He is an infinite being. Incomprehensible is one of the words that's used to describe him. Listen to here. I'll just read a few lines. I was going to read the... Uh, 28 lines, but I'm not going to read all 28. I promise. But listen to how Athanasius, he didn't write this, but it's called the Athanasian Creed. It was written around the 6th century. Listen to how he, he speaks about this doctrine. Whoever will be saved, 
So you're not a Christian if you don't believe this. Before all things, it is necessary that he hold to the Catholic faith. He's not talking Roman Catholic. He means universal. The faith that all Christians, in, uh, all Christians hold to. Which faith, except everyone do keep whole and undefiled, without doubt, he shall perish everlastingly. So you've got to believe this, or you're going to hell, to modernize his language. And the Catholic faith, universal faith, is this. That we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. Neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. We don't confuse the persons. Jesus isn't the Father. The Father didn't come to this world, take on flesh, die on the cross, rise from the dead, and ascend back to heaven to the Father. That would be nonsense. So we don't confuse the persons. Neither do we divide them. We don't say there are three gods. There aren't three. There's one. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Spirit. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit is one. one the one is one. The glory equal. The, majest, the majesty co-eternal. Right? So when he says, but the Godhead, what he's speaking of is the essence of God. But the essence of God, but the Godhead excuse me, of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, the essence is all one. One essence. Three persons. Such as the Father is, such is the Son. And such is the Holy Spirit. The Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, the Holy Spirit uncreated. The Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, the Holy Spirit comprehensible. The Father eternal, the Son eternal, the Holy Spirit eternal. And yet there are not three eternals but one. And you read this and you think to yourself, boy, He's trying to make a point, isn't he? <laughs> Three persons, one essence. And that is what Jesus, in, in, in a word, is conveying to Thomas. When he says to him, in verse um, 10, Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? And now he proposes proofs, too. He doesn't just make the statement. Now he's going to give two, he gives two proofs. His words and his works are the first. The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. And isn't it interesting that he switches immediately, he talks about words and works together. He says, first, the words that I speak, I do not speak on my own authority. It's not because Jesus is a lesser being than God. No, because Him and the Father are in perfect agreement and what He reveals to the people is what, what God wants to hear. Remember in Deuteronomy, God said that He would send a prophet to the people. He, Jesus, is that promised prophet who would reveal the Word of God. Why? Because He was in the bosom of the Father and He knows God better than any man because He Himself is the Son of God who dwelt with God eternally. Therefore he comes and he reveals God. The prophets and the apostles constantly, when they preached, they were pointing away from themselves. Christ points to himself constantly in the Word. He never points away from himself unless he is pointing to the Father. And in pointing to the Father, he points to himself. And this is what he, so his words were the words God wanted him to deliver to us. He 
explained God, John 1.18. But then he says this, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. We dealt with this in John 5. When he said to the Pharisees, my Father is working and I have been working with my Father all along. And they knew there that when he made that statement, this guy's saying he's God. Because the works that the Father does, God, no one else can do. Only God can do what God does. And that's what Jesus was confessing in John 5, and that's what he's repeating here. And now look at this command that he gives in verse 11. And the com it's interesting. Uh, well, an interesting point is that this is plural. So if you lived in Florida, he would say, y'all believe me. That's what he would say. Because it's a plural command. He's not only speaking to Philip. He's commanding them to believe me. That I am in the Father and the Father in me. He's commanding his disciples to have faith in him. What a blessed command. He's now, right, when they ask questions, Jesus understands that this is faith seeking understanding. They want to know more. So what does Jesus say to them? He invites them. Well, first, examine my words and works. Only God could do what I did. And now, believe in me. Trust in me. Believe in me. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. Or else, believe me for the sake of the works themselves. In essence, he says the same thing he just previously said. What he's saying is, believe what I'm saying to you. I am trustworthy. If you examine the life of Christ in the Gospels, no man lived the way Christ lived. It would be impossible because he was the God-man. And no one ever spoke the way Christ did because he was the God-man. And he is saying, believe my testimony. Believe the things that I've done. Believe the things that I've said. And uh, one author wrote this, and I'll, I'll close. Let us carefully observe how our Lord here, as elsewhere, specially names his works as testimony of his nature and divine mission. So whenever we are struggling with these difficulties, where do we turn? We turn to Christ himself. There should be a pattern in the Christian life where we are constantly reviewing the Gospels, reading through the Gospels, thinking about the Gospels, thinking about what Christ did. Why did he do that? How did he do that? Where did he do it? For whom did he do it? Why did he say that? where we should be constantly meditating and thinking about those things. And as we grow in our knowledge and God gracefully fills in those gaps and those questions, what will happen is our faith in Him will increase because we will get a clearer picture of who He is. You know, if you have a neighbor move in across the street and uh, let's say you have some kids and they have some kids, you might think to yourself, well, we'll let our kids play, but they're not going to go inside the guy's house because I don't know them. Right? You don't know him yet, kids can't go in your house. But let's say you get to know him and, and his wife, and they're actually really nice people. Come, you start to have them over for, for dinner, and, they, and you find out they're even Christians. They just go to another church, and you build a great relationship with them. And now you let your kids go in their house. Right? Go, hey, we're going to go over to Chuck's house, play video games, Dad. All right, no problem. Go ahead. Or the more you know him, the more you know your neighbor, the more you trust him. And the clearer picture you get of who God is, the more you will trust him. And that picture is the, the clearest. 
in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we should fix our eyes on him. In light of these things, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word, for the clarity of your word. Help us to meditate upon it and to see your Son in all of his glory and his splendor that we might come to know you more and more. We ask these things in his name. Amen.